Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome back to another edition of the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio, along with our two esteemed hosts of Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. I'm Joe Brand. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Give us five stars. We'd really appreciate that. And we start off this week's episode with Alderman Gilbert Viegas, who's working towards a basic income program that would support Chicago's neediest families hit by the pandemic. We're joined by the Alderman of the 36th Ward, along with Ashley Alvarez. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Alderman, as Joe mentioned, your ordinance uh, sets aside $30 million of coronavirus relief money for a 12-month guaranteed income pilot program. What is a guaranteed income pilot program and why do you think it's warranted here in the city of Chicago? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me this, this afternoon. Uh, let me just say that with the American Rescue Plan that passed um, during the election, it was very crucial that um, help come to the, the people, especially on Main Street. And so uh, when Congress went ahead and passed and the president signed into law, the American Rescue Plan, uh, in there, there's based on the Treasury notes, states that there's really a need to make sure that the money is getting down to the very micro level. And uh, the, because of the fact that the pandemic has just really devastated communities, we thought that a guaranteed basic income pilot would be the best vehicle to get the money in cash into people's hands so that way they can spend it on rent, food, um, clothing, and really um, go ahead and get the local economy spurred. Based off, based off the, the cash, the $500 a month for one year. So Alderman, your initiative cites other pilot programs like in Stockton, California, Jackson, Mississippi, and nearby Gary, Indiana. What lessons did you learn by looking at the programs in these other cities? Right. So um, Gary, Indiana right now is just embarking on that, on that uh, initiative. Uh, but Stockton, California really has some data. And really, Stanford University followed the recipients and, and put forward a report that kind of sh- that demonstrated a couple of things. Um, the misnomer that, you know, the cash was going to be spent um, in ways that were not going to be helpful to, to the, uh, to the people was just, was just not right. Yeah. 1% of folks that received the money that actually spent it on alcohol and cigarettes, 12% of people that received the funding actually got a better job because they were able to afford daycare. They were able to afford the ability to take off work to get an interview for a different job in order to better themselves. So there's there's a lot of an, an, a lot of ways that this investment has helped benefit communities. And I think that right now, as we have seen, this pandemic has just devastated everyone in the community. And when you take a look at city government, we've also helped in in in, um, in halting the economy because we've told industries, hey, no conventions, hotels, you can't have people, restaurants, twenty five percent capacity. Well, where are these people going to go? And so we know that people are behind on, on their bills, and this type of cash infusion would help them and kind of bring them current. Alderman, your colleague on the city council, Jason Irvin, who's also chair of the city council's Black Caucus, criticized the program. He said it would be, quote, a slap in the face to African-Americans 
in light of ongoing discussions regarding uh, reparation payments to some of his constituents. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, I, I responded to my colleague that in the ordinance specifically, it states that if you're a recipient of any type of uh, uh, money, whether it be from reparations or any other type of, of um, uh, uh, program, that this would not preclude you from participating in the guaranteed basic income. We also even added language that talked about returning citizens because we wanted to make sure that uh, as, as some of these communities are being challenged, we wanted to make sure that we we threw the rope out to everybody. We didn't want any barriers. Um, and so, you know, while I have an ordinance prepared, and we did it quickly because of the fact that time is of the essence, reparations have been talked down for decades. However, there is no ordinance. And so as I've talked to my colleague, I'll be more than happy to negotiate and talk with you about things, but I need to see an ordinance on what reparations look like uh, because I don't want to negotiate against myself where I have an ordinance and this is based off of off of data that uh, other cities have done. And so we think this is a good approach. We'll get there. I think that I've had some discussions with my colleagues on, on how this helps. There are members of the Black Caucus that support the initiative. As a matter of fact, two of the, two of the uh, primary co-sponsors are two African-American women. So, Alderman, another issue that's come up in connection with the initiative is in light of the ongoing budgetary issues in our state, and particularly in the city of Chicago, how can taxpayers afford handing out money to citizens right now? Yeah. So what, what we did in the 21 budget, we had some short term um, lending um, that we did in order to in order to in anticipation of this um, in anticipation of this uh, this money coming from the feds. So what we want to do is we want to take a look at paying out, paying off that short term debt, but at the same time making sure that not just Wall Street gets the money, but also Main Street get the money. And so um, based, if we were to take all the money, the $1.9 billion, and pay off everything, we would still have a few, a few um, maybe like about $50 million left. However, we got to remember that there's other sister agencies that the city funds that also receive money from the ARP. And so just like I've told the administration, if you want me to try to find $30 million out of a $12 billion budget, let me add it. I'll make sure to find it real quick because there's a lot of ways that we can find some efficiencies. Uh, and I've been a big proponent of, of finding efficiencies, whether it be through, um, you know, looking at the budgets of other citra agencies that we fund or through technology. So there's a way to find this. The bottom line is that, you know, we know what the cost is of someone being incarcerated. We know what the cost is of someone being shot on the south and west sides of the city. I'm talking about a $6,000 a year uh, investment in someone, a family, uh, that are, is going to really, really be life-changing and meaningful. Look, I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of a, of a program similar to a guaranteed basic income. My dad died when I was eight years old, and my mom received the death, survival's death benefits from Social Security. So she received a monthly stipend until I was 18 years old. Both me and my brother went to the Marines, so we paid back our debt to society. But 18 to 50, which I am now, I can tell you, 32 years, I've paid a ton of taxes. I've paid back that $100,000 investment that the government did in me. And I think these, these are, there's a hundred stories like this that can be done if we make these types of investments. Alderman, we appreciate your service uh, in the military. Um, last week, as you know, the federal government released a jobs report that was underwhelming. It was expected to reveal a million, a million new jobs. 
In fact, they reported that 200,000 new jobs were only created. Uh, many are pointing to the stimulus, the federal stimulus money, as a reason for those numbers in that people are finding it better financially to stay home and accept federal government money rather than go out at work. We know also that uh, sectors like retail, hospitality, which are so crucial to the comeback of Chicago and our tourism industry are incredibly underserved. People are not taking those jobs now. So in light of all of that, isn't it a problem that your giving your, your proposal would give more money to people who aren't currently working? Wouldn't that further incentivize them to not work in these crucial jobs? No, well, I would say that when you're taking a look at the national numbers related to unemployment, you got to remember that the that the national uh, minimum wage hasn't increased in decades. I think we're at 750 an hour. Um, and so when you take a look at Chicago specifically, we've tried to increase the minimum wage here. The problem that we have right now is that you have sectors where people want to come back. However, you know, restaurants and, and hospitality are in a, a little bit of a predicament here because city of Chicago is, is saying something and the state of Illinois is saying, saying, saying something. So for example, Governor Pritzker talked about opening up in June. Well, the mayor's talked about opening up in July. So here you have, here you have uh, two levels of government that have put, have put uh, conflicting uh, deadlines, or not deadlines, but goals as to when they want to open. And so if I'm, if I'm an operator of, of a restaurant or hotel, and I'm thinking that June may, might be the potential based on the governor, and then the mayor says July, I can't plan accordingly. Um, and so the fact that people are saying that um, they can't find um, help is is I, I think a misnomer because of the fact that if if you want to if you want to get people will come as, as supply and demand. I mean, right now you have people that are making ten dollars an hour. Uh, if you pay them a little bit more, they they're going to want to make more money. Um, so I I think I think this whole um, uh, that people don't want to work and they're sitting at home waiting and, and living off unemployment. Remember, unemployment has has a, a shelf life that's going to come to an end at some point. Um, so I'm not really concerned. Um, about that. I think this is a good opportunity where uh, entrepreneurs have an opportunity to uh, pay a little bit more and get better talent um, because people want to come back to work. We, we see people, people don't want to be at home anymore uh, and people are ready to open up the city. Alderman, we got about 60 seconds left. I want to just turn to another initiative you're working on. Yesterday, the FBI confirmed that DarkSide was responsible for the Colonial Pipeline hack. We also heard Joe Biden discuss it yesterday and talk about uh, some actions that the federal government will take. You're working on uh, hacking at a local level. Tell us about that. And again, we've got about a minute left. Yeah, thank you. So um, I mean, I'm introducing a resolution at the next city council uh, to have the Asset Information Services and the uh, chief, data, chief Data Officer come before the Economic Capital and Technology Committee to talk about our readiness as a city uh, as it relates to technology. We know that uh, potentially there was a, a hack that took place, emails released. Uh, that puts that gives me pause because what I we deal with uh, hundreds of thousands of people that have a, um, valuable information, and we want to make sure that that information uh, is safe and that the government and government uh, is maintaining the the public's information in a way that doesn't allow it to get into into onto the internet. Alderman Viegas and Ashley would like to encourage everyone to reach out to their local alderman regarding the basic income program. Alderman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day.
You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on with the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, and we move on to the upcoming divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates that's grabbed the attention of the nation. Holly Davis, an Austin-based family law attorney and also legal analyst, says it could be a long divorce process. And our next guest is founder of Kerger Davis LLP. Holly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Holly, last week, the news of Bill and Melinda Gates' divorce uh, broke and obviously a lot of speculation. It's gotten a lot of airplay. You handle divorces among many high net worth individuals. From the outside, one would think that divorces among billionaires like Bill and Melinda Gates, whose estimated net worth is about $130 billion, You'd think that there's more than enough money to go around and that proceedings among people who are so wealthy should not be contentious or protracted. Why is that often not the case with these types of divorces? Surprisingly enough, divorce and breakups are the great equalizer. So even though a billionaire has billions of dollars, they're still going through a gut punch of a breakup. And so a lot of times you find that when there is so much money involved, there really is no cost-benefit analysis that would stop a person from continuing to litigate their case. So if you have two billionaires that are upset with each other and there's hurt feelings and emotion, oftentimes we see that play out in the courtroom and money is no, there, you know, no uh, prohibition on continuing to fight their ex-spouse. So just because you're successful and rich doesn't mean you aren't heartbroken and upset. And sometimes in these divorce cases involving billionaires, we find them drag on and on because there really is no incentive financially to stop the fight. There is like a, you know, a continuous flow of money that funds the disagreement. Holly, uh, no prenup, I guess, but a separation agreement. Presumably Bill Gates has hired a lawyer or two over the years. Uh, how come no one told him at some point, just grabbed him and said, prenup? And what is the difference between a prenup and a, and a separation agreement? Hindsight's twenty twenty on these prenups. Um, what we know about Bill Gates is that, you know, in the early days, he was just a dude in Seattle um, <laughs> working on his computer. And so while he would have thought that he was going to be big, perhaps, and believed in himself, it might have been audacious back in the 90s to ask the woman he was dating to sign one. Um, I don't know whether or not people are thinking about that at the time, especially um, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, where, you know, now premarital agreements are more common. 
And a separation agreement simply means that the two people have reached an agreement before making it public. So they probably decided a while ago to get divorced or separate and have been spending the past few months or a year uh, hammering out the details of a separation agreement. It's wise to do that when you have so much um, exposure. And when you're a business owner, obviously their uh, philanthropy is giant. Their foundation is giant. You don't want to rock the boat, especially during COVID when the foundation's sole purpose was to help with the vaccine um, and the efforts around the world to address the COVID-19 variant uh, and, and its variants. So you really don't want to rock the boat with your businesses. So it's really wise for people with this much net worth and with the, uh, this entangled business interest together to keep the details of the fight private. And most people, um, if they can, if they can keep the emotions down, tend to negotiate the terms of their separation before it hits the news cycle. So Holly, you mentioned the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. A lot of people are speculating about what the fate of the foundation is going to be and what it's going to look like post-divorce. Much of the Gates family wealth has not yet been donated to the foundation. What are some of the potential repercussions for the foundation in light of Bill and Melinda Gates splitting up? The Gates contributed that fund to the foundation through an irrevocable trust, which means that the money that the foundation has, which is, you know, I think one of the largest foundations or the most funded foundations in the world, uh, is going to stay where it is. It can't be changed. The question becomes future gifts and future donations from Bill and Melinda Gates. And because they're both really involved in this foundation, I think we can expect them each individually to contribute to the foundation moving forward. And this is where I think it's an important distinction when we guess as to why Melinda Gates uh, is getting divorced and, and who instigated it. But I believe that Melinda's desire to contribute to um, philanthropies in her interests and her venture uh, funds and uh, organization as well is very important to her. So I think we can imagine that they both will be contributing to the foundation, but the amounts are going to be unknown. And the proportion to which Bill and Melinda are each individually contributing to the foundation are still up in the air. Um, I don't think it's a cause for panic. I don't think these two would have created um, this foundation and its missions just to leave it based on their relationship ending. Uh, I don't think that's a part of their plan. And even if they did, this foundation has so much money at its disposal that it can really be effective for years to come. So I think it's unlikely that they won't contribute in the future. We just won't know exactly how much. Holly, thinking about this breakup and, and you know, Jeff Bezos, another high profile billionaire recently, um, and, you know, in light of what you mentioned earlier about the separation agreement, that this has probably been in the works for a while, we're hearing now that, in fact, Melinda Gates may have been concerned about uh, her husband's ties to uh, Epstein, and that precipitated the breakup. You work with lots of and you represented lots of high profile individuals who are separating, getting divorced. And despite the best efforts in this case, we're still seeing some negative press come out. Inevitably, this is going to be in the news now for a long time. Um, with high profile situations like this, what is the best approach? I mean, do you need, I assume, you know, the bigger the divorce, the bigger high profile the clients, you're going to need publicists. I mean, these separations can literally affect not just this couple, but as Tina mentioned, charities, economies, public corporations, stock markets. So what's the best approach that you counsel your clients on when they are considering breaking up when they're in this category? It's a difficult uh, advice to follow, but I tell people to keep emotions in check. 
obviously when you have a team of professionals, you start with the legal professionals, then you have publicists and, and other experts in your case. You have them on your team. And as soon as you get your legal team involved, you want to communicate with them early and often. Why? So that you don't make an emotional mistake that has ramifications for your business and your divorce. If you want to pop off a terrible email or text message or say what you want to say to your spouse that you're divorcing as a billionaire or million or multimillionaire, you're very used to getting your way in business, most likely. Most of the times you're a type A personality, you're very successful, you're at the top of your game, you're at the top of your organization, you probably don't answer to too many people. It's very, very difficult to go through a divorce and a legal separation um, as a high net worth individual because you are no longer in as much control as you were before you received the news or delivered the news that you were breaking up into your relationship. And so submitting to your legal team and actually understanding that you need advice, that your first thought might not be the best thought for your case is the number one uh, obstacle that most of my clients and others have. So trusting the process and trusting someone else to help you process that emotion uh, and find a shared goal between you and your divorcing spouse. In this case, if I were the Gates, the number one concern is to keep the foundation alive. You'll notice they announced after um, their annual meeting, their divorce. So they are very concerned about any fallout to the foundation. Um, and so at some point in the separation process, we can assume that Bill and Melinda Gates got together and said, hey, even though we're not working out, we do not want this foundation to tank. We do not want our individual efforts moving forward and our future businesses to tank because we can't get it together and divorce politely, at least in the public eye. So we can assume at this point that they've had a mature conversation, probably with the help of several legal professionals who have processed their emotions first before it gets to the other side or to the public. Uh, and I think they've done a good job so far of really um, clamping down on the on the bad publicity which is really difficult to do. So their legal teams are, are highly sophisticated. You can find out more about Holly and her firm at KirkerDavis.com. Holly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving on with the Legal Face-Off podcast and our dynamic duo of David Sussler and our own Tina Martini are back to discuss another inside-out feature of Chicago Lawyer Magazine. And this week's discussion, the importance of delegating tasks and how it's not a sign of weakness. Welcome, David. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, we've been having you and Tina on discussing your Inside Out column for many years. And this one is, uh, I think, particularly relevant and interesting because of the fact that while delegation is more important than ever, it might be harder in some ways than ever, given that you can't just walk down the hall and speak to the colleagues <laughs> delegate it, right? So I guess, David, first question is, how do you accomplish delegation in a COVID Zoom world? Uh, well, honestly, it's pretty much the same uh, because, you know, my company, I've got, I've got, we've got 30 factories, 30 offices all over the U.S. and, and in Mexico. So 
my work has always been uh, to a large degree electronic. So you still get on the phone. I actually see people more often because of Teams calls, but it's it's still a group effort. Uh, and I still need my various business people, safety people, uh, whomever to, to delegate various tasks to. So the same way I call them up, I send them an email and, and say, Hey, can you help me? Plus I've actually been back in the office since last August. So, uh, there aren't many people in my office I delegate to, but if I need them, I walk down the hall with my mask on. In lieu of people, you're actually delegating to some of those figures over your left shoulder on the shelf. Uh, yeah, those are the uh, Chinese terracotta warriors. Uh, yeah, they come in very helpful, especially in litigation matters. They speak to you at night. Um, <laughs> Tina, how do you, as an attorney, accomplish delegation without being bossy? Because, you know, my daughter calls me bossy all the time. And I think I'm just <laughs> delegating. I tell her I'm just delegating. I'm following the inside out column. I'm just delegating these tasks to you. Instead, I get called bossy by my teenage daughter all the time. So how do you professionally avoid being bossy and instead be a effective, efficient delegator? I think that's a really great question, Rich. I, I'd say the way you do it is it, it, it's all about the tone with which you do it. Um, that, you know, in terms of delegating a particular task, but also the tone that you as a leader or even just as a member of a group um, create in terms of collaboration. I think if it's done in the spirit of collaboration, then it doesn't come off as bossy. And I, I'm a firm believer that in order to delegate a particular task, you should always keep in mind that you shouldn't ask somebody to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And if you lead by example and actually have demonstrated to folks that you're looking to delegate to, that you're willing to do the task you're asking them to. And in fact, even if you're able to demonstrate to them, not necessarily at that moment, but in, in, in your prior history with folks, if you can demonstrate that you have actually done that task or a similar task, I think that you're a lot less likely to come off as, as bossy and it really becomes more of um, an operational issue and, ma and maximizing efficiency and making sure everybody is fully utilized and getting a task done with client service in mind. Let me jump in there real quick and add, don't forget the simple words, please and thank you. I use them regularly, verbally and by email. Um, and I actually saw, saw a conversation on LinkedIn recently where people were complaining about responding to to an email request to do something with will do which i, I do that and, and again please thank you and will do it's an will do is an acknowledgement of the delegation please and thank you is a way to say look i'm not bossing you around i'm asking for your help and i appreciate it, it goes a long way there is a whole debate though as to whether you should be sending the acknowledgement email right because at some point there's a endless series of will do's got it. But I, I, I totally understand your point being, listen, be nice. That's the end of the day. At the end of the day, just be nice. You'll get a lot farther. I want to pick up though what something Tina said and David, from your perspective as inside counsel, someone who regularly ha uh, hires outside counsel is delegation. Something you ask of the firms that you hire, because the problem is from our perspective, from outside counsel, when we're trying to get work from someone like you is, this concept that only I can do it, right? You're hiring me, you're not hiring the firm, and I'm in the best position to accomplish what you're hiring me for. And the problem is most of my clients will tell me, I'm hiring you. I'm not hiring your first-year associate to train them. I'm not hiring your firm. 
So how do we as attorneys sort of balance that need to delegate and also the need to be the face in front of the client? So it's two questions. Number one, do you specifically ask outside counsel to delegate? And number two, how should we as outside counsel accomplish those competing interests? Yeah, great, great questions. Um, Yes, I do. I think the very nature of hiring outside counsel is in and of itself a delegation uh, of, of legal work, right? Um, so I ask you to handle a matter for me that's, that's delegating. Um, another, you know, a more simple example for um, uh, we're looking at buying a piece of property. We need to do an environmental phase one. I, I can retain a consultant to do a phase one. I asked my outside environmental counsel to do it. I delegated it to him um, really because in that situation, number one, it protects uh, attorney-client privilege. And number two, I didn't have time. So I delegated it to him. Uh, so yes, uh, in-house counsel do that all the time. The other, the other thing is, is, is in terms of how do you handle your internal delegation as outside counsel? I think you, it's as simple as having a conversation with me, the in-house attorney, and tell me what you're going to do. Um, you know, not to veer into a pet peeves on billing, but I need to know who's going to appear on my bill because I don't like to be surprised when I get my bill. So if you've delegated the work I asked you to do and not told me you're delegating, uh, I might be upset. But the reality is we in-house attorneys know that you, the partner, are going to likely delegate to more junior attorneys because it's more efficient and it, 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 from a time standpoint and a billing standpoint. It's also cheaper for you, right? I mean, the logic, yeah. we're billing out the associates or the paralegals at a lower rate, so it's yeah. for the client. Tina, jump yeah. in, because that, to me, this is one of the biggest issues I deal with every day, you know, because we as attorneys have a finite number of hours, and sometimes I, we think that the clients don't understand that, that while <laughs> we want to be, listen, we're all, most of us are type A personalities. We're service providers. We're really dedicated to our clients, and we want to be the best, you know, service provider to every single client. You can't, and sometimes you have to delegate ourselves. But how do you balance that? How do you make sure the client feels that they're getting served while also giving it to you know someone else besides who they hire? You know, that's a great question, Rich. And I'd say the answer really is that when we're talking about it from the outside counsel perspective, it's really dependent on the type of firm. Like if we're talking about law firms, there's sole practitioners, there's small firms, and then there's big law. I can tell you that with the practice I have and have historically been in big law, the clients definitely expect things to be delegated. Um, leverage is critically important, particularly when you look at rate structures in, in larger firms. The way to stay competitive is to build a terrific team around you. And there's no way for people like you and me, Rich, to do what we need to do by way of business development leadership and otherwise, unless we create very strong teams around us of, you know, secretaries, paralegals, clerks, as well as, um, you know, the paralegals and then the junior, junior attorneys, and then folks that are more like our lieutenants who can help run client relationships. To not delegate is, is really self-limiting behavior. And then you're really confined to success being defined by how many hours you personally can bill a, a, a day. And that's just not how I, I've grown up. And um, I really like having a strong team around me and training people so that they can graduate from doing certain tasks to doing more 
complex tasks, whether it's bringing paralegals along or whether it's training junior attorneys to become partners. Um, that's critically important to my practice. And I think clients love it. They want to see a diverse team. They want to see people graduating to different types of tasks, and they want to see you and me not doing everything all the time. Yeah, your article discusses this somewhat, but there's such a psychological component to it because again, you know, we all think that we're in the best position to do everything for our clients. And maybe that's true, but at some point you have to give up the reins. And I'll tell our listeners and viewers that as hard as it is to give it up, it's as satisfying to give it up because I, I will tell you that I'm, I think the biggest delegator out there. I've got a large volume of business, thankfully, and I've got a great team and I couldn't do what I do without delegating. And I delegate every day, even, you know, small tasks, big tasks. And there's nothing better than when you delegate and you move on and you, and key to that is knowing that who you're delegating to is going to obviously do the job well. With a couple of minutes left, we've got to finish up with, of course, some musical questions because you're both huge music fans. Sussler is a fellow Springsteen fanatic, as is Tina, to a little bit of a smaller degree, but still <laughs> a Springsteen fanatic. So not a collaboration, delegation, you know, who do you think either Bruce Springsteen or pick another artist, but it's got to be Bruce Springsteen, let's face it. Who do you think he delegated best to either in the E Street Band or another musical partner with whom he collaborated over the, you know, 50 years he's been making music? David, let's start with you. That's an easy one. I think that's a great question. And the, the first name that pops my mind is Steve Van Zandt, um, especially on the on the production side of things, as well as the uh, uh, like, like, what do I include on this album? Uh, Steve, right. you know. Yeah, good, good answer. Tina, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, I think that's a great question. I, I'd say the person who immediately jumped to my mind was Clarence. Um, Clarence was really the backbone musically in many ways to Bruce's music. I mean, obviously, incredibly talented group of people in the E Street Band, all of whom, you know, were really incredibly um, influential on his success. But I, I think Clarence, given the nature of the instrument he played and his relationship with Bruce, there's something almost, I mean, there's something very spiritual, frankly, in my mind, about the sound of Bruce's work that included Clarence. And I think it's it was a collaboration and a trust there that Bruce gave Clarence. It's a great answer. I'm going to leave you with two answers. Uh, number one, John Landau, his longtime manager. Uh, you know, if you read Springsteen's book or listened to it or listen or saw his Broadway show, you'll remember that he speaks of John Landau as just his true partner, you know, for the last 40, almost 50 years, just, you know, everything from personal to professional, everything in between. Landau is the guy that he, he really relies on. Um, and then the second answer, and I'll do one of my famous name drops here is, as you know, I had the, incredible fortune of meeting with Max Weinberg just a few days ago in uh, in, in Delray Beach, Florida. Uh, you mean Del Boca Vista. Del Boca Vista. <laughs> yeah, Max and I, who of course is uh, the drummer for Springsteen, longtime drummer, he and I had breakfast. And what you realize is that actually, despite what we're saying, maybe Springsteen is not a good example of delegation because he is truly the boss. I mean, and this is not just from Weinberg, but everyone, we all heard these stories of like, Springsteen has said, this is not a democracy. I am the, you know, decider. And some of the stories I heard from Max back that up, that yes, they're great collaborators. Yes, 
you know, he takes all of their opinions greatly, but at the end of the day, he is the boss. So maybe Bruce isn't the best delegator after all. He, he runs a benign dictatorship, Absolutely. as I've heard him say. David, thank you for joining us. Please do <laughs> thank it you. Again. Absolutely. Please do it again. I know you will. And uh, I encourage all our listeners and viewers to subscribe, which I know they will do at chicagolawyermagazine.com. Thanks so much for jumping on. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. It's time for the legal grab bag here on Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. And our two guests today, we'll start with Zhao Xiao, patent attorney at McDermott, Will and Emery. Zhao, thank you for so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And along with attorney Karen Conti of Karen Conti Law. You can also hear her on WGN Radio. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, fun to be here. All right, so Tina, weeks after Derek Chauvin was charged with second degree murder, now all four officers that were on the scene of George Floyd's death are now facing civil rights charges. Right. So last week, a federal grand jury indicted Derek Chauvin, as well as the three other former officers, um, Thomas Lane, Alexander Kung, and Tau, Tau, Tu Tau, um, for various civil rights charges, um, including a violation of Floyd's right to be free from unreasonable seizure, um, with respect to Chauvin, that included um, the unreasonable force by a police officer um, when he put his knee and down on him for over nine minutes and, and killed him. Um, and also with respect to the other officers, their failure to intervene. Um, there's also charges of deprivation of liberty without due process. So, you know, this is just a continuation of what we've been seeing both on the civil as well as on the criminal front. Um, everybody was watching the trial and the fact that Chauvin was convicted last month. Um, and what's also interesting to note is that Chauvin, as we know, had a separate uh, incident happen back in September 2017 involving a 14-year-old where he also held him by the throat. He hit him in the head with a flashlight and um, held his knee to the youth's 
knee and back to his back and his neck. So obviously Chauvin had a history of these types of incidents. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this one unfolds. Um, the litigation is going to continue for a while, Rich, on this. Yeah, Karen, what I thought was really interesting takeaways from this charge are many things. Number one, that we're seeing a very activist Department of Justice under President Biden. We were unsure of how activists they would be, but under Merrick Garland, the attorney general, we're seeing a very aggressive Department of Justice so far. Uh, we've seen pattern and practice uh, investigations started in Louisville and in Minneapolis. But to charge the officers, um, I thought, with uh, failing to intervene is really aggressive, right? They're not being charged for something they did, but they're being charged for something they failed to do. Number two, and I want you know everyone to jump in on these topics, but number two is, um, you know, some feel that this is an example of double jeopardy. You might question, well, how could the state have already convicted Derek Chauvin of murder and for the federal government to step in and also charge him? Isn't that double jeopardy? Isn't that prohibited by the Constitution? The answer is no, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there is no federal charge of murder. They're not charging him with murder. They're charging him, as Tina mentioned, with deprivation of due process and liberty. But more importantly, there's a, you know, recent case, relatively recent, um, that says that the state as its own separate sovereign, per the words of the case, can in fact go after someone for relatively the same charges that the federal government does. Without getting in the weeds, I'm sure more, you know, it's more info than our listeners care about. This dual sovereignty um, uh, case says that you can go after the same person twice. But then I think the question is, should they, right? I think the bigger question that's interesting is, yes, you can go after Chauvin again, but is justice being served by doing that, knowing he's already serving a minimum of 12 and a half years? He will be once he's sentenced, possibly way more than that. So that's a lot to throw out. Karen, why don't you start? Then we'll talk well, to uh, you. You know, prosecutors have a lot of discretion in what they do. They can charge. They cannot charge. You can't force them to do anything. But one of the things that prosecutors do is they try to set a precedent. And the public has spoken in this case. We all watched the video. It was awful. The whole world watched it. And it's time to change the rules here. And I think the federal government is taking a position that we are not going to stand by. We saw the conviction. There may be other convictions in the state court. But we as the federal government are going to take a position here that this is wrong. We're going to set a precedent for other police officers, for other uh, uh, cities uh, who have police departments, and we're going to punish this guy. Now, he, has he become a cause? Derek Chauvin, unfortunately for him, yes, he's become a cause, but the government is making a big statement here. Yeah, very good point. John, what was interesting, too, is that the federal government could have charged uh, a hate crime. Many thought that Derek Chauvin should have been charged uh, on the state level with a hate crime, but he wasn't, nor was he at the federal level. Yeah, I, I don't think he should have been technically just because hate crimes usually have to do with there there were prior incidents of saying things, uh, racial slurs, uh, different things that are posted, uh, different comments that add to the idea that this was solely done for the purpose of his race. And I don't think we had that here. I just, or I didn't see that evidence. Now, does the brunt of this get done to the black community? It sounds like it does, but there has to be specific facts that support that. Yeah, Jay-Z, what, Shaw, you what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I echo Karen. I think um, the government, the federal government here is making very clear statements. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Merrick Garland had, had made some, maybe um, predictive statements when he appeared before Congress in discussing the DOJ budget that was being requested and talking about, you know, efforts that they were going to be doing. And, and this seems like part of that, right? That they have heard what the people have to say. It was a very traumatic year plus since these events happened last summer. 
Um, and in addition to what's done on the, the state level, you know, the, these are within the realm of what can be done at the federal level. And as Karen said, these are not the same charges. Um, I do tend to agree that, you know, hate crimes are a higher standard and perhaps they didn't have the evidence that they needed to do here. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if the federal prosecutors are treading carefully as well. It's a it's a case that's gotten a lot of attention. Um, they surely have a lot of experience, but they probably don't want to set up any bad precedents for themselves or, you know, especially given the heightened sensitivities involved. Not too long ago, we were talking about vaccination passports. Well, now, Rich, a California bar owner was arrested for selling fraudulent vaccination cards. I've never heard of going to a bar to pretend you took a shot. I, I just I don't compute that. <laughs> Yeah, maybe shot and a shot, right? I remember going to uh, places to buy a fake ID to get into bars, but inevitably we all knew that this would happen, that, you know, people would be faking uh, vaccination cards. Um, although, you know, the vaccinations are so plentiful now that it's really obviously easy to get one. But yeah, this guy out of California was arrested and charged with several felonies, including identity theft um, for selling these cards for 20 bucks each. Obviously, we all think that this is the right move. And I think, Tina, no one's surprised that an underground economy has started and will continue uh, with this you know, new piece of uh, information that's so critical to moving forward beyond the, vaccine, beyond the, beyond the uh, pandemic. Yeah, you know, I find it remarkable. I can't say I'm, su- I'm surprised. But at the end of the day, people are paying for fake vaccination cards when getting the real vaccination is free, right? So, I mean, right now we have more supply than demand, and I think that's going to continue for a while. Um, But, you know, it's human nature to create some sort of an underground market for all types of things. And we knew just by the very nature of the rollout and the fact that you get a card to commemorate the fact that you've gone through vaccination, we actually talked about the fact that Joe was showing his card to people <laughs> during one of our recent shows and counseling him against doing that. So um, Joe's, is the temp- Joe's is a template for all these fake ones. <laughs> I, saw. I actually it tried. It didn't. Joe, Joe, I tried to look last night on eBay. I typed in fake vaccination cards. Uh-huh. None of them pulled up surprisingly, although you can buy a bunch of like laminated you know, lanyards for them. Maybe they are being smart. Maybe you have to go on the dark web or, or something else, or, or like you said, find your your local watering hole that has a little bit of a side business. I mean, joking aside, I really do hope that people aren't doing this. Um, the at least in you know San Joaquin County, and with the assistance of the um, of ABC, since this was involved a, a local uh, bar establishment. These are pretty big ramifications, right? He's not only being charged with identity theft or forging government documents, since this is a CDC document. Um, he, they found a loaded unregistered handgun in the process of, of doing the search that they were performing to find the, the falsified records and then, of course, falsified medical records. So there's some felony, a lot of felony charges, a misdemeanor as to the medical records. Um, but at the end of the day, it's interesting. I think Tina said the same thing I was thinking. You're paying for something that you, get for free. And maybe it goes to the heart of it, right? The people who are buying these are probably perhaps not people who would be inclined to get the vaccine. Um, I don't know that we're quite at the stage yet where you need the vaccine card to do what you want to do other than perhaps travel in in some instances. Um, And this, I think, adds maybe some fuel to the fire that's been happening in terms of the debate on, you know, should we be doing paper vaccine cards? Should we be doing something that's digital and perhaps harder to falsify? Um, 
it's unfortunate, right? Hopefully vaccines will, will provide a path forward for a lot of us, but um, I don't know. I, I feel like, like Tina said, if there's a market, people will come. So um, maybe this is just an offshoot of that. Let's go down to Florida, where common sense always seems to prevail. Uh, an elementary principal won't be facing criminal charges after spanking a six-year-old student, Rich. Yeah, it always happen it happens in Florida, right? I mean, Florida is the best state for these kind of bizarre stories. I don't know. Have any of you seen the video? Mm -mm. No, I didn't. You're not watching Inside Edition every day at 3.30 like me, apparently. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the video shows a pretty horrific spanking of this uh, first grade student down in uh, in Florida at Central Elementary School. And the principal, who ironically, a few months ago, they showed a video of parents circling the school driveway, honking at her to give her on Principal Appreciation Day. Uh, this woman is, you know, spanking this girl and the girl's wailing away, asking her to stop. The woman stops, starts again. And, you know, you can't believe that this stuff is going on. The hardest thing to believe is that... <laughs> It's all being videoed by the mother. And that's the key point here. Why the state's attorney said they're not prosecuting is because, again, common sense. The, the mother had to give permission and consent to the spanking. Uh, apparently, the local law is that if you consent for your school to discipline your child by spanking, then it's OK as long as you're present and as long as, you know, this consent is clear, which is the whole concept is bizarre, right? So state's attorney refused to prosecute. But now the family is saying we didn't give permission. We didn't we weren't aware of it. And we want you to prosecute. So kind of bizarre. Lots of people are going crazy on uh, on the Internet about the woman having the nerve to videotape her own child being beaten and then complain about it. Um, but I personally think this, this principal should be at least fired, if not thrown in jail. It's you know, crazy. I, I think it's totally crazy. I mean, like all of it is, is crazy. The notion that this woman gave permission, you know, and asked them purportedly to do the spanking. It's like, okay, well, why would you ask somebody in a school, like a principal or a teacher to spank your child? I mean, just spanking's not right from the very beginning, but then to ask somebody in the context of school to do it, to video it, and then to say, I never granted permission. I mean, the whole thing is just insane. Yeah, Karen, the alleged crime that this kid committed was damaging a piece of computer equipment at school. She's also done it at home, allegedly. And the reason why the mother uh, wanted the school to do it is because she didn't want to have the kid taken away. Personally, the two of these women should be thrown in jail and, and the kid should be taken away, in my opinion. Well, you know, what's interesting is that almost every state, uh, the law is that you can spank your child. And listen, if you're in a custody battle in the family law court, you're not going to want to uh, do that because the court could hold it against you. But certainly legal. And this goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. You have a right as a parent to spank your kid and to discipline your child as long as you're not using some harsh tool or really doing some serious damage. And do you know that 19 states have laws on the books that say that their schools can inflict corporal punishment on their students, 19 states. So uh, in Florida, it is legal for a school teacher or a principal to do what she did, he did. So, you know, whatever, it's, uh, it's really frightening. I know Illinois is not one of them, and I don't think we're going to see it here anytime soon. But uh, from a standpoint of a prosecutor, probably there's no case there. Yeah. Uh, it, Go ahead, Joe. 
It just seems like such an outdated question. How old is too young to be spanking our children? Why can't we move into how old is too young to be playing professional soccer? Like the <laughs> who's suing the National Women's Soccer League for not allowing her to try out for the league, Tina. So 15-year-old phenom Olivia Moultrie is actually suing the National Women's Soccer League because they won't let her play until she's 18. Now, what's interesting is that the that Major League Soccer, which is the men's counterpart to the National Women's Soccer League, actually does allow um, men, young men who are under 18, to play. And so what's really interesting is that this lawsuit claims a violation of the Sherman Act, which for those of you non-lawyers out there is the antitrust, anti-competitive um, federal law. And so it's an interesting argument um, that, her that her parents are making on her behalf that the fact that she's not allowed to play is restricting competition. What's interesting is that she um, has a Nike deal already and has had one in place for many years. She actually moved to Portland um, to play with the National Women's Soccer League's team, Portland Thorns. She's not able to be technically a part of the team. She's participating in their um, development academy system, which she would have to do until she comes of age. What's interesting, though, is that the season is starting in the next few days, and they actually moved for a TRO to um, declare the rule unlawful. And so what's interesting is that this seems to have opened a little bit of a can of worms because she's not the only person who I think um, really wants to see this rule changed. But, you know, I, I'd say, you know, more power to her. You know, she's a, a prodigy. She realizes that if she can't play um, at this age, that it could impact her chances for things like the Olympics. And so why not? Well, the reason why not, Tina, is because it's junk litigation. I mean, listen, there's we all get that you might be a talented athlete and that everyone has the opportunity to better themselves. But at some point, just com basic common sense should still dictate, right? And, you know, I defend against a lot of ridiculous lawsuits. I think this is one. I love female athletes. I think, uh, all, you know, more power to them. And, and I was we've covered extensively on this show the movement of the female soccer, you know, the U.S. soccer team. But at some point, she's 13. I mean, you 15. have to have some... Okay, she's 15. 15. I mean, could you sue, you know, to become president at 15? To vote at 15? To drink at 15? There's some logic to age limits, right? Perhaps she is more prone to injury against grown adults if she's playing at 15. Perhaps she can't handle... She doesn't have maturity uh, physically and emotionally to handle the rigors of professional sports. On the other hand, so I, I think this lawsuit should be dismissed. On the other hand, it made me think immediately of Freddie Adu. And I had to go look up uh, what age Freddie Adu was signed. Freddie Adu was a, you know, prodigy uh, soccer player. And he signed with D.C. United of Major League Soccer. And he was only 14. So it is an interesting argument that men are treated differently than women, for sure. But I think and I have a real problem with that. Why is it OK yeah. for the Major League Soccer team to recruit boys that are that are her age or younger? I mean, yeah, that's I, don't think right. it is. I agree. I don't think it is. I think the rules should be applied, you know, throughout. But at some point, you got to have common sense and have an age limit. But but Karen, what are your thoughts? 
think that's the, the exact key there is, is there's a difference between men and women. That's to me the key because yes, you have to have an age limitation. Listen, if you're going to be traveling with a team, if you're going to be practicing with a team and you're 13 years old or 15 years old, you don't want to have to babysit them, right? So even though they're fabulous athletes, they're still kids with impulse control issues and the like. So, you know, you can't, there's got to be an age limit, but it should be even handed. I agree with you on that. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think it's pretty telling that uh, Major League Soccer on the men's side doesn't do this. And internationally, they don't have these types of restrictions. I I think I've seen just uh, a while back um, some of the Beckham boys, you know, it's a little bit different situation because their dad is David Beckham. But, you know, they have some talent themselves and they were assigned to development leagues within the Premier League in England. So, So So, I mean, to your point, some of these country soccer teams are from countries where they also put children to work in factories, right? So I don't think we should lower the standard because, you know, we're, we're, we're in developing countries that don't care about basic child labor laws. Well, if she's been able to have a Nike deal since she was, uh, what was it, 11. 13 or something, I mean, her yeah. parents are involved. And I, we've had young phenoms in other sports, Chloe Kim, for example, where the parents are very involved. I don't think that you know, they or she would be doing this if they didn't feel that she was ready. And it is most likely a case by case basis. The biggest issue that I'm seeing is it's not parity, right? If if you can do this in MLS and Rich, you said yourself, Adu was signed by DC United when he was 14, a year younger than, than Moultrie, then, then why not? Right. I'm not quite sure that, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act is necessarily the way to do it. Um, not quite sure if, you know, not signing her is truly considered anti-competitive. To the market, obviously haven't reviewed anything, so take that with a grain of salt. And uh, we we are uh, my girls play soccer. It's it's a great sport and love it for the teamwork and camaraderie and, and those skills developments. But to me, the bigger issue is is the parity, not just within the U.S. but internationally. Not so much are there age limits. I mean, you have age limits in other sports so that players can develop, go to college, for example. The NBA put something like that in, right? Um, but I'm not quite sure that, you know, just saying because someone's 15 that they don't have maturity or physical ability or whatever to play when she's already been training with the Thorns really applies. Well, and Joe, I got to give a quick shout out to another 15 year old female soccer player, Emma Lenkov, the star, <laughs> star goaltender of the Lincoln Park High School team. They played last night. They had a really, so they went into the game and they were, I think, 4 0. And last night, the mighty Lane Tech on the turf at Lane Stadium, which is like basically a, a massive stadium. They lost 8 nothing. It was kind of a rough night uh, for Emma Lenko, but she'll be back this As week. long as there wasn't spanking of her. There was no spanking. <laughs> Definitely okay, not by me. She spanks me, not the opposite. Yeah, I, I, heard, I heard spanking violates her Nike deal, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like she basically wanted to LeBron James it, skip college, go right into the league. Uh, Speaking of college, a few parents are suing UMass Amherst after the university kicked out their daughters out of school for violating COVID protocols, Rich. Yeah, this I'm not so sure about whether I, you know, think it's BS litigation or not. So they were these these three women were seen on uh, Instagram with a uh, they were off campus. It was on a Saturday, which is very important. And the school kicked them out. Uh, and didn't refund their $16,000 tuition because it violated the school's COVID policy, which says that you got to wear masks. Speaking of disparity between women and uh, men, and especially when it comes to college athletics and the disproportional treatment of college uh, athletes, what's interesting is that UMass decided to not um, allegedly 
enforce these same rules against the men's hockey team who just won the national championship and who not only are seen in, in still photos, but are seen in videos having a huge parade with not a mask in sight by any member of the hockey team. And they're passing the, 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 uh, the trophy and they're shaking hands and they're all over the place, not one mask. And of course, the allegation by the parents of these three women who are now suing the school are saying, where's the equal treatment? How come you're not treating these hockey players who you hold on this pedestal the same way as these three women? By the way, if you look at the actual photo, in the background, there's like dozens of people without masks. Now, who knows if they're students or not, but presumably some of them are in, you know, at UMass Amherst. So I think this is a legitimate case. I think it's nonsense that you would uh, only single out these women and not apply it to this, you know, uh, th these hockey hockey players who just won the championship. I mean, I, I agree with you, Rich, on this one. I do not agree with you on the last story at all, but I agree with you on this one um, because when you look at what the consequences are here, I mean, for, well, first of all, no matter what the consequences, you need to have a rule being equally applied, right? But I think what makes this a really more compelling case here is the consequences to these girls for having been photographed without their masks and violating the school's COVID policy. They're not getting their money back. They're, they're kicked out of school. Those are pretty severe consequences and they will have these, these things will have terrible impacts on these girls' futures. And so I agree with you. I think it's crazy that there seems to be a hockey exception to this rule. And it seems to be, it seems to me that what these, what the hockey team did, I mean, congratulations to them and all, but what they did is a lot more egregious than what these girls did. And they're not being penalized at all. You represent clients every day who are concerned about their brands, right? And the, the, how their brands are being perceived in the marketplace. Putting aside the legal questions, just dumb. It's just a dumb look for a school to do this to three women when there's videos of these male athletes running around with no masks. Joe, shout out for you. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't hear. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I think it, I agree with both of you. It, this doesn't seem like it's the same application of, of the laws and the school's COVID policy. And even the fact that, you know, beyond whether they're, they're male or female athletes, if the school set up is the one who set up the parade, which uh, it seems as though there's a prohibition against that in Massachusetts as well, then that just seems a bit um, quite, quite unfair. And like Tina said, absolutely. These, these girls, I mean, we didn't even see their last names in the articles because their parents don't want to name them for fear of further ramifications when they do apply to other schools. Karen, and then, you know, they're going to have to disclose. I'm sorry, Josh. Uh, Karen, assuming that they did violate this policy, does the punishment fit the crime here, you think? Well, I'm going to take a little separate uh, position on this. Aside from the disparity, I agree with all of you that, that you can't treat the women and the men differently. But the school can make policies. And why? The school is, is in, in being entrusted with these young people who are in a very small area. They're trying to learn. They're trying to go to college. They're trying not to learn remotely because they want to have these kids have a college experience. And everyone has to comply. If you have five people not complying and there are rules, and even if that, those rules go into the Saturdays and the off-campus parties and the like, what if they get sick and come back and there's 40 people in a classroom and they and they infect them. So I understand and that the school has to take a position. It's the disparity that's the wrong thing in my view. Yeah, quick quick point. I, I can see the school arguing that maybe the difference is that the parade happened on campus, whereas the social event happened off campus. So you have a little different Petri dish. 
But again, I mean, it, it's it's a bit, it's a sad case to hear. Don't have a clever segue for this one. Just going to jump right into the headline. A lawsuit between a Chicago astronomer and American Girl doll has been resolved, Tina. So for folks like Jay-Z and me who are the scientists here, we look at these stories and find them very interesting. Maybe someday Jay-Z will have American Girl dolls of us. Patent attorneys and trademark attorneys. That'd be amazing. <laughs> so the first case, though, involves an Adler planetarium astronomer, Lucianne Walkowitz, who um, is a pretty well-known astronomer in these parts. And as, as, as they say, um, there aren't many astronomers who even can tell a story like this. But apparently, they filed uh, a lawsuit last April against um, Mattel and who owns the American Girl. And what happened was American Girl launched a, a doll line um, a couple of years ago called the Luciana Vega doll. And so Lucianne Walkowitz alleged that this was a spitting image of, of them, including obviously the connection of the first name, Vega referring to the star that Lucianne has done a lot of studying and research on. And there's also a, a telltale streak of purple in this doll's hair that mimics what Lucienne does with, with their hair. And so the suit asked as sought several types of relief, including cancellation of the trademarks for Luciana and Luciana Vega, um, as well as um, a, also a right of privacy claim, which was really interesting. Now, a number of these um, these counts were ended up being dismissed. Ultimately, this lawsuit settled last week for um, no monetary amount, but undisclosed terms. Um, we, we don't see cases like this very often, but it did get a lot of airplay when it was first filed right on the onset of COVID and um, and pretty interesting case, Rich. Jay-Z, I mean, this seems like I've learned a lot about intellectual property over the last seven years. Uh, Many Tina. of us are sitting here with Tina, <laughs> but, you know, it seems like an open and shut case. Astronomer, purple hair, certain kind of shoes, named Luciana, but yet American Girl said, and I'll quote them, that we take great pride uh, in creating original characters for girls. If I'm on the jury, my only response is, really? I think, honestly, it might depend also how much American Girl and Mattel you've had in your life. So my daughter has a Luciana Vega doll. She loves her. Um, I can go grab her off camera if you like, but you should go grab her. Yeah, let me grab her really fast. Hold on. And you know, while we're while Karen, waiting, for, waiting while we for take a doll break, we need a doll. <laughs> you know, this is a really interesting area of law because people say, "Well, what happens if you're walking down the street and someone takes a, a photograph of you and you end up in the newspaper?" Well, it's it, the issue is using likeness for commercial gain. That's when it's a problem, and that's when you have a right to your privacy. You have a right to your own identity, and if and if I want to make money on my own doll. No, uh, then uh, then I can do it, but somebody else can't do it. I found it interesting that the judge threw that out. I think that the, the judge kept the false endorsement claim in, but threw out the trademark claim as well as the right to privacy claim. Let's see the doll, Jay-Z. So she's not wearing the outfit that she came with, but you can see the purple streak. Oh, wrong side. The purple streak. Um, so Luciana Vega is of Latin, Latin. She's a Latinx, Latina. Um, in the back in the story. So I honestly never thought much about, and I'm, I'm not from the Chicagoland area. So perhaps I didn't have as much awareness of um, Lucianne Valkovitz otherwise, 
But I thought that, you know, Luciana was sort of Lucy in the sky with diamonds, Vega maybe referring to the star in, in Lyra, um, and purple hair streaks and holographic dresses or, or holographic boots were just a cool thing to do. Um, so, well, Jay-Z, um, really quickly, we'll, we'll have yeah. a couple minutes, but, you know, the settlement is not disclosed. And we're about to talk about, you know, massive divorce damages, but how would a court calculate damages for this? Obviously, you're looking into, you know, one of the factors is what the astronomer would earn in her lifetime. But again, this is not a quick question, but give us like 30 seconds on how you think you calculate damages in the settlement. Yeah. So, I mean, this specific settlement didn't have any financial considerations, which I think suggests maybe some view on both sides to that the case isn't so cut and dry. Um, but perhaps looking at the salary of um, Lucianne Valkovitz, what they would earn in their lifetime, looking at the um, the amount that American Doll has made since 2018 when this doll was released, perhaps looking at how much of that was relating back to Anyone who, you know, if they do some consumer surveys and find out, you know, did you know about Lucianne Falkovitz? How how much was that related? I did a quick look on the American Girl website to see if they had any, you know, noticeable differences or things like that or references to any persons, but I didn't see much. So, hey, Joe, I own a house right near Wilmot, Wisconsin, and there is a American Girl factory that for many, many years, all the American girls were built right there. And I drive by it all the time and now it's empty and it's deserted. I just want to go in there and I picture every, you know, horror movie of just like dolls, like looking at me and coming, coming after me in this big abandoned warehouse in Wisconsin. So maybe that's our, we'll do a road trip, you know, up to uh, the abandoned American girl factory in Wilma. Someone, like someone on this panel has issues. I'm just going to say, <laughs> just going to say. I think you might be disappointed, Rich. These dolls are hot collector's items and even the outlet sales I am told are, have long lines. So uh, it, it might be worth the drive, but you might find nothing but, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Let's go. Not that. <laughs> you you talk about horror stories. That's exactly what I was afraid of. When we I should have afraid. Chucky and uh, Luciana meet. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm Chucky. <laughs> Stem heroine and horror icon. Okay. And I know <laughs> it was show and tell here. I would have brought my own little Barbie doll. <laughs> I, I've got a few baseball bobbleheads. That's all I can do. <laughs> John Lennon action figure over here somewhere. <laughs> uh, actually, really quick, I went, so creepy, Rich. <laughs> I, I went to college with somebody who went on to be a reporter down in Florida, and she claims that Barbie made a reporter Barbie off of her likeness, and she put up a frame-by-frame -frame image of an Instagram post and the Barbie, and it's kind of crazy how how similar they oh, yeah. both are. Um, I think I think it never went to a lawsuit, but I think they may have pulled it. Um, so yes, yeah, so well, no. Barbie's been. I mean, Barbie's been involved in just hundreds of lawsuits. Over, I mean, you know, let me really... let me go get my Barbie collection and I'll <laughs> <laughs> go get your broadcaster. Will Barbie. it fit on frame though, Joe? It's got to all fit on frame. Say it again. I said, is it going to all fit on frame though? Yeah, no, that that's why. I just <laughs> up on it. Don't open the door to the Joe Barbie room. You don't want to. That's a door you'll never close. Believe me. This this is actually the Barbie changing closet, and yeah. inside there, inside behind that door, is my whole collection. Yep. All right, let's wrap this thing up uh, with, the divorce, <laughs> with the divorce between Bill and Melinda Gates. Uh, it's going to end up splitting up the earnings of the fourth richest person in the world, Tina. So yeah, so I mean, we're just going to round out our discussion with a very high level commentary real quick. We interviewed Holly Davis earlier in our show to comment about what the settlement between Bill and Melinda Gates is likely to look like. 
what separation agreements uh, mean in the context of prenups and all of that good stuff. But um, what's really interesting is that the news breaking about Bill Melinda Gates splitting up last week has had a lot of folks talking about other really rich people and their divorces over the past several years with Jeff Bezos and McKenzie being one of the more recent ones um, in terms of the uber billionaires. Obviously, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West um, recently announced their split up as well. And we have Elon Musk, who's been married numerous times, including um, to the same lady twice. So um, just very interesting when you hear about the amount of money these folks have. Obviously, when there's controversy surrounding the split up, as Holly mentioned when we interviewed her, um, that's often when the emotions run high and the proceedings are protracted. So far, there hasn't been comparable drama with respect to Bill and Melinda Gates, but I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, just very interesting times, Rich. I guess yeah, it doesn't always bring people together. The Elon Musk story reminds me of one of the greatest Chris Rock lines of all time, where he says about you know getting back, marry or remarrying. He says, "You don't break back into Alcatraz," but I'll leave that line <laughs> alone. Kara, this is what you do. This yeah. is your main area of practice. What advice would you give to the uh, the Gates family as they partake in what's going to be the most expensive divorce in history, probably? Well, put everything in paper or in, on a Word document. Um, but I, I think that uh, I think they're doing a good job by by having the settlement agreement and not going having it go through the court system. How I try to handle cases is, hey, listen, before we start filing and doing public things that everyone's going to regret, why don't we have a mediation? Talk about it. Be collaborative. Figure it out. And the one other thing I wanted to mention just quickly is, everyone is always saying like he's got to give her this much money. That's not the way it works. The amount of money that you make during a marriage absent a prenuptial agreement belongs to both parties. So she's given him some money too. So, uh, and even if you're not working at Microsoft and you're raising children or doing other things, the courts look at those two different jobs as being absolutely equal. So uh, it's, it's not a surprising thing that she's going to get half of what was acquired during the marriage. Yeah. Joshua, why are we so fascinated by the breakups of the rich and famous? I don't know. It could be escapist. I will admit to be a, a people.com and occasional daily mail reader. Um, I was a little bit sad to hear this, but at the same time, I, I think there's, I, I, if, if they can get through very amicably, if they've already worked out a separation agreement, and especially if they're going to continue working together on their foundation, I think that just speaks volumes to the couple that they are and that they hopefully will still be in some, some way, shape or form. Um, I mean, the Bezos breakup was pretty big deal. Mackenzie Scott came into or retained Karen uh, quite a amount of money after that separation. And, and she joined the giving pledge as well, um, which Bill Gates and Melinda Gates are, are part of already. So I think we'll continue reading about it, but I, I'm not quite sure that it'll be as salacious as perhaps Kim and Kanye um, once that finally boils down later this year or, or who knows when, when that'll finally be resolved. All right. As we wrap up, Karen, we love talking about movies on this show. More accurate story, more accurate movie portrayal of divorce. Kramer versus Kramer or Marriage Story from a year or two ago. Oh, I like Kramer versus Kramer. I've always been a big fan of that movie. Yeah. So more accurate, huh? I think so. I think so. But, you know, movie legal movies, they're always more exciting than the real world. As we know, as lawyers, life as a lawyer is not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, I'm curious. What about Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce? Have you seen that one? Is I have that one not. accurate? I have not seen that one. 
It's a series too. So <laughs> lots of content potentially. Yeah. And there's also the, uh, what's the one with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker? Is that called divorce maybe? Um, I don't know. I've now, I've now brought the show to a screeching right halt. There's a Sarah Jessica Parker one with uh, the guy from Wings. Remember the guy from Wings, Tina? Paul McCartney? No. Tim Daly? Was Tim Daly in it? No, no, no. The other guy. Tim Daly's sister was a patent attorney, Tyne Daly, in a short-lived show. Tyne Daly Uh, was a patent attorney. I remember her from... um, Cagney and Lacey. Cagney and Lacey. That's right. Wish we was Sharon Glass. I'll give you $1,000 if you know she was Cagney or Lacey. There's no way of knowing, by the way. (laughs) Time Daly was Lacey, I thought. Who knows? She was a uh, Harriet in Harriet's Law, a David E. Kelly show that I think lasted for one uh, one season. And I was so excited to hear it because she was going to be a patent attorney. But in the first episode, she has like a nervous breakdown, throws things at the firm, quits, and then sets up shop as a criminal defense attorney. So maybe that shows you what people think about patent attorneys. So I think our action figures, or at least mine, are going to be some ways off, Tina. <laughs> yeah. Quite a rabbit hole we've gone down. Uh, and off the rails. Just to wrap everything up in full circle, Kramer versus Kramer. Here's my Jay Peterman bobblehead. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. Oh, nice. Wow. We're of the Payne County Cougars. Opening day is uh, May 18th, coming up for anyone out there. Did he come that year? I assume he came or something. Uh, yeah, two years ago. I had him on the air with me for an inning. It was amazing. Highlight of my career. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, Still the best host of uh, of a family feud. The pyramid or family feud? Yeah. All right. Before we go down another rabbit hole, Karen, Zhao, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. This was fun. <laughs> and all the viewers and listeners out there, please feel free to follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, subscribe to us on the podcast, share the podcast, gives us five stars. For Rich, for Tina, I'm Joe Brand. This has been Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.